Welcome to this Halloween special of Pop Screen, the geek show podcast that covers the good, the bad, and the spooktacular of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. Though the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a blood chilling author for. <laughs> I can't do this any longer. <laughs> I have some dicky rights for the geek show and byline times. What are you, Mark? <laughs> I'm also some dick who writes for the geek show, and uh, we are cult. Um, I said cult and horrified. <laughs> And Z Network and Arrow Films and Scarred for Life Volume 2. Nice. And Mark, you are not a big horror movie fan, aren't you? <laughs> Even less so after watching this week's film. <laughs> I am and I'm not. It's weird. I have tastes when it comes to horror movies um, mm. and they don't seem to correspond with a lot of people's idea of, I hate gory graphic um, torture porn um, yeah, yeah. body horror, stuff like that, I'm not a fan um, I'm more hammer horror <laughs> or things that have a really interesting mood or atmosphere um, yes Whilst this film is of the era of Hammer Horror, it's not really fitting those criteria, is it? <laughs> uh, no, not least because uh, is it is it an Amicus film? Actually, I forget. It's... Uh, no, it's Tygon. Tygon, that's it. I yeah. knew it was one of uh, Hammer's big rivals, but yeah, yeah. Tygon yes. and IAP, American. Were they called American Independent Productions? American like International that? Productions. International Productions, that's it, yeah. yeah. So Ty- um, Tygon is not really something that had a stronger brand identity as Hammer or Amicus, but they had some interesting things out. They were very involved in that first wave of folk horror, uh, Witchfinder General and Blood on Satan's Claw were among theirs. Um, but this is... This definitely feels like a sort of watered-down version of the things that Hammer would be doing in the early 70s, where they realised that horror was moving more towards contemporary settings rather than the period settings they'd used, but they just weren't in touch enough with what contemporary Britain was like to make that work. That's true. This is, of course, um, the wonderfully titled The Haunted House of Horror. Yes. Um, which promises so much, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, on a trades descriptions level, I think you can get it on at least two counts. <laughs> 
this is another of my recommendations to you as well, isn't it? It was, yes. Um, primarily because you're going through what can only be described as a midlife crisis weird phase of watching <laughs> as many beach movies as possible. Yes, that's sadly true. Yes. And um, the sort of common ground between uh, the American sort of beach blanket bingo movies and this yeah. uh as you say, contemporary late 60s Tygon horror movie is, um, to quote the film itself, the epitome of swinging London, Frankie Avalon. I'm so glad you picked up on that line. <laughs> because, I mean, there's a lot of British movies from the 60s and <laughs> 70s that cast an anomalous American just to bring the cash in. But they don't rub it in your face like that, do I they? Mean, Good to give Frankie Avalon some good grace. He looks positively embarrassed when that line of dialogue is uttered. <laughs> it's like even he knows, and and he's not that good an actor to sort of front it out. He just sort of goes, "Yeah." <laughs> I think Frankie Avalon's strong suit as an actor, and I say this having, as Mark has said, gone through much of his earth. Uh, over the summer uh, is that he just seems like a good sport. You give him any silly thing to do in a beach party movie and he'll absolutely throw himself into it. He doesn't seem to take himself seriously at all. And it's why he is so hilariously miscast in this. It's a strange one. I mean, this film has a really interesting pedigree. It's written and directed by Michael Armstrong who mm. apparently was writing this screenplay when he was a teenager. Um, so it dates back to at least a decade before this. He apparently saw Psycho and then thought, well, the game's up and we're going to have to really rewrite and overhaul this because everything is done. You can't top yes. Psycho. You need to, I need to really concentrate and try and do something with this. Um, he yeah. originally called it The Dark, which is a much better title. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> Even though the film isn't the film as stands isn't particularly dark. Um no. it wants to be in certain places, but it's not. Um let's face it, this is Scooby Doo, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. I mean I, I will say there are moments where you can see that this is made by someone who had a fire lit under them by Psycho. And I was pleasantly surprised that after as you say, being Scooby-Doo for all of the preceding runtime, the first kill is surprisingly good, nasty, protracted. There's a good there's a sort of, lot of... There's a lot of Kensington gore, isn't there? There is. There's a good audio-visual idea when yeah. uh, the cassette player comes to that's playing a track while the murder's happening comes to its end and you hear the mm. sort of flick, flick, flick of the tape run out yeah. as the knife comes down. I think, you know, there's good set pieces in it, but Armstrong really should have got someone to collaborate on with the script, which is surprising as he went, he became more prominent as a screenwriter than he ever would be as a director. Well, you could argue that there was a collaborator on this script, um, Uh but only after the film was made. Ah. This is a real, I mean... I don't know if you watch this film thinking, hang on a minute, this doesn't make any sense. 
Um, <laughs> the reason it doesn't yeah, make any cool. sense is because it's not because it's shit, even though... You I know, was going to say, it's, it's a Tygon movie from the late 60s. I didn't know <laughs> it didn't make any sense, and it didn't strike me as unusual. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense, primarily because it was... There was such a fight going on behind the camera. Right. Um, it, it, American Indi- International, International. Um, had a lot of um, say in what they wanted from this particular movie. And right. what they saw in Michael Armstrong's film was not what they wanted. Um, they wanted, uh, let's see, they wanted two American stars and right. insisted on either Frankie Avalon or Fabian, who was another um, <laughs> music star in America at the time, wasn't he? Whereas originally yeah. Michael Armstrong wanted Ian Ogilvy, who had just done um, Witchfinder General. For Tygon, um, yes. he was Ian Ogilvy was going to be the epitome of swing in London. I um, can buy which, that. Yeah, I mean, he'd just come off the back of Witchfinder General. He'd done something very similar for the same director, Michael Reeves, with um, Boris Karloff. What was that one called? Now the Sorcerers. Oh yes, that was yes. A, a, a sort of decadent hipster in, uh, in mm. swinging in London. So that would have been really interesting. Um, but no, IAP wanted two American stars. Um, they wanted a musical number. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Don't know why. Um, they wanted two more killings than what the film originally had. And was this run by Henry Portrait of the League of Gentlemen <laughs> by any chance? And then they didn't like the ending or the reasons for um, why the killings were happening, so they wanted a completely new exposition uh, right. for it. So... <laughs> None of this makes sense. So what they did was um, they got in touch with another um, director whose name should be on my terrible notes, um, <laughs> Gary Levy, a.k.a. Okay. Peter Marcus, who was asked to rewrite, reshoot, and recut the film. Now, to do this, he added everything at the beginning of the movie which includes the scenes at the pub called The Case is Altered, which is a 17th century pub in Middlesex. That is its genuine name, The Case is Altered, which I always find really interesting. So all that stuff at the beginning, where they're in the pub, and Mm. they have a sing-song around a piano and a bit of dancing going on, that is all new in the film. That, that, That also ticked the box of IAP, wanted a musical number. Okay, well, that's, that, that's an elegant way of getting round it, I think. It's that sing-along, yeah. Um, yeah. The stuff on Carnaby Street is all uh, Gary Levy stroke Peter Marcus. That was never that. in. That was never in the script. In fact, um, George Sewell, who plays the character of Bob, is yeah. completely made up um, in the rewrites. He had no um, involvement with the film prior to this at all that makes sense because he is weirdly outside of any of the main action is yeah he? He keeps they basically just to come into it but he never yeah. does they put him with uh, is it um is it the gina sylvia warwick. character gina warwick yeah yeah so all their scenes were shot months afterwards by all accounts um in fact george sewell was um asked to be in this film <laughs> In a ca- in a lay by, 
I don't know how this is this happened, but apparently he was in a lay-by um, and asked to appear in the film. He had no idea what the film was about, and the character was named Bob Kellett, which is the name of a British comedy director of the time. Okay. I mean, Sybil's character, I think, is interestingly miscalibrated because he's... Really miscalibrated, yeah. Yeah. He, he's like Sylvia's partner, and it's it's in the script that there's an age gap in the relationship, and that's a source yeah. of tension. It's like, okay, but the age gap... The, there's a gap and there's a chasm. And I think when you cast George Sewell, a man who was born looking, you know, like he'd been smoking 60 a day for the past 58 <laughs> years, yeah, you've really made it into a chasm. Absolutely. I mean, he... He's a wonderful actor, George Sewell. Mm. I, I really love him as an actor. I think there was a there's there's a sort of solidity about him, isn't there, in everything? Yeah. And a natural um, thing, which comes from you know Joan Littlewood, Ken Loach. He did all those sort of uh, apparently one of the craze favorite actors. I can believe that. Which I can imagine just... them w- watching him in Get Carter and thinking, "Oh yeah, that's our guy." Yeah, it's just perfect in it. And like you say, he's just got that face of a man who, even, a, I mean, I don't know how old he was there, but he looks about 45, doesn't he? He, he, he always did. He, he always looked about 45. I mean, he's clearly, I think he's clearly younger than the part is written, but mm. it doesn't matter because he looks old. And you yeah, put him yeah. in his sort of trench coat in Carnaby Street with a trilby on, and he just looks like a, a completely different generation. You do um, wonder if his chat-up line to Sylvia involved, like, coming into the back of his van to see some puppies. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the fact that he says, I didn't know what this film was about. It's called The Haunted yep. House of Horror, mate. You know, I mean... It's, <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not difficult to, to put two and two together on this, you know. Although, although... There isn't a fucking haunting in it. No, that is that is it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is true. He could say, I did get what this film was about. Yeah. I'm with him. I didn't know what this film was about. It's slightly different, I think. Um, <laughs> the other thing that um, had to be added into this film, but it was added, it was added in whilst Michael Armstrong was still doing it. Um, and that was, again, from IAP, they wanted a part for Boris Karloff. Just oh, right. completely at random. Can you get us a yeah. part for Boris Karloff? So, you know, he's obviously looked at his script and thought, well, there isn't a part for Boris Karloff, but I'll write mm. a bit um, involving a police detective. Yeah. And that police detective was later played by Dennis Price in the film for the, for the reason that Boris Karloff was too ill to be in the film at this point. I wonder um, if there was some thought to making Sylvia's lover a bit younger, a bit more fresher faced, and you could get Karloff in. For could that, have got Boris definitely. Karloff for that, couldn't you? Yeah, that would have made yeah. more sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but originally, <laughs> um, at IAP's insistence, the police detective was going to be a massive part in this movie and a huge red herring. He was going to be wheelchair bound to accommodate Boris Karloff's um, ill health. Yeah. And he was going to be just wandering around the house sort of screaming, ranting and raving. I mean, that would, 
the, the film has not turned out perfectly, to put it very mildly, but that would have been disastrous if you, yeah. it, it was asking you to believe that the police had put their dotteriest and maddest man on right. the stage. Right. Uh, the best thing is when they realised he was too ill, they said, well, can you write it as a narrator? Can you give him like narration duties? And so, <laughs> there's no need to have it. You know, you're asking me to write a film or I've written a film about a bunch of hip 20-somethings in swinging London at the height of the 60s, and you want a very old Englishman to narrate it. <laughs> yeah. It's a strange call, isn't it? So they gave the part to Dennis Price, and I think I think he did film a lot of it, um, a lot of the scenes in the house, but mm. nobody was happy with it, and they got rid of it. So his his role is extremely cut down completely to the point where you think what was the point anyway so that's another reason why this film doesn't make much sense um in those yeah. sequences armstrong's original vision was the whole film was going to be near as near as damn it the whole film was going to be in the house yeah there wasn't really any sequences outside beyond what he had to add with the police detective character so the scene in the club i think was always there where he um goes to sort of gently interview, interrogate Frankie Avalon and um, Gina Warwick. You know, I think that scene always existed. Um, But really the whole film was supposed to be in the house, which again might make sense calling it the haunted house of horror. You're literally Mm -hmm. set in a house, you know. Yes. Um, But yeah, it's it's such a weird film. The original... um, reason for the killings is the character of i mean we'll give it away won't we richard is responsible god yeah give it away come on nobody wants to watch this (laughs) (laughs) richard is responsible for the killings richard has a very interesting cast wise richard has uh, a very interesting um setup because originally um armstrong wanted david bowie for the part because right. he'd just done a film called The Image, a short film. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've seen The Image. It's a weird. It, it, if you told me it's that's Lin- how David Bowie came to be, I'd believe you. It's it's the it's um, Lindsay Kemp, isn't it? The Image, or am I thinking of something else? I think Lindsay Kemp did his his sort of movement. Um, that must be his where movement teaching yeah. for it. Yeah, because it's a drawing that comes to life. Mm. Um, and Bowie's the drawing that comes to life and um, Michael Byrne is the artist and he has to sort of kill his own creation. It's a very interesting sort of Frankenstein monster type type thing. It's it's really well shot in black and white as well. So he wanted David Bowie for the part of Richard. IAP who had um, argued that you know the epitome of Swing in London had to be an American actor and they went for Frankie Avalon were then appalled that they were going to get David Bowie because they thought there'll be a clash there. People won't take Frankie Avalon seriously if you've got this really interesting, um, slightly dangerous... I mean, for once, they are are not wrong, are they? Yeah, I mean, could (laughs) you imagine how that would have played out? It would have just been a weird (laughs) clash of cultures. I mean, it would have shown up Frankie Avalon for this weird 50s reject uh, in a a supposedly hip contemporary setting. Uh, So he didn't get his way with David Bowie. Uh, He went for Noel Janus instead who is Samantha mm. Janus's um, dad. 
Right, right. But apparently Noel Janus wasn't a member of Equity, um, so that fell through. Apparently the part uh-huh. was originally written for Peter McHenry as well, but I don't know why he wasn't sort of cast all along. They ended up casting Julian Barnes, who was originally uh, <laughs> cast in the role of uh, Henry, a much smaller uh, role in the film. So they had to do a bit of swapping around there. But yeah, well, One must just briefly clarify that it's not that Julian Barnes. No, not Julian Barnes, no, no. This Julian Barnes is... I mean, people say that David Bowie wasn't a good actor, but Christ. <laughs> <laughs> this Julian Barnes is like a plank of wood, isn't he? He um, is dreadful. Yeah, absolutely. He's a very fey... He's, he's, he's certainly a very good-looking young man. He's a very fey... Uh, yeah, he's, he's he's got a look about him, but... It's Nothing fey, more. Yeah, it's, it's a fey performance as well, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, his original... Um, motivation for the killings is that it's it's um it's a homosexual subplot um ah that's interesting and apparently michael armstrong was when he watched the film just couldn't understand why all that had gone and he's suddenly talking about a dead brother that never existed in his original screenplay whatsoever i think that would be an interesting kind of circularity to that if that had gone in because Coming onto this as someone who has just been watching a load of AIP beach party movies, one of the things that struck me about that is that it opens with what is, I think, supposed to be the sound of someone having a panicked freak out off camera, but which sounds unmistakably sexual. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, oh, right, that's that's really funny because the beach party movies are the most famously like determinedly sexless film franchise in film history. They make the Marvel Cinematic Universe look like Pasolini. (laughs) And um, and it would have been nice to just sort of corrupt, you know, Avalon's image more thoroughly, which this doesn't do at all, really. But he gets stabbed in the cock and balls at the end. Doesn't he? I thought, did I see that right? Which again, I imagine is the homosexual subplot. I guess now you've said that, it makes more sense. I mean, my assumption is that jabbing a knife into Frankie Avalon's crotch will just bend the knife. I imagine he's like a Kendall. It's a Kendall, yeah, 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 it is. I mean, his job is beach, as we know. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, this is that man's job. And now he's in this weird sort of scooby-doo slasher movie in, in england yes. it's, it's very strange um this does have a really interesting cast though doesn't it it's got a wild cast it's yeah got I mean... a, it's got a wonderfully wild cast um another pop screen um sort of connection here is mark winter who plays the first victim gary uh he sang uh venus in blue jeans go away little girl um, so yes. he was he was big news in uh, in the music industry. Um, you've got Jill Howarth, who played Sheila, who apparently was on drugs throughout the film. Oh right, uh, <laughs> I, I mean whether that I was can, I can understand <laughs> needing a bit of an anaesthetic. Yeah, um, Jill Howarth does not have, as far as I'm aware, a music connection, but she has a music owl connection in that uh, on stage 
she originated the role of Sally Bowles in Cabaret. Yes, I believe so. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, she was a very attractive woman as well. You know, Stunning, there, there's yeah. some wonderful sort of. It's not. It's it's not the term to say nowadays, but back then it was during a dolly birds. These are these are dolly yeah. birds, aren't they? Um, and I you, think you you can't quite get out of that mindset when you watch it because like that one of those Carnaby Street scenes that they added in reshoots just has like a shop whose only sign is just man's shop. <laughs> and that's the, I have no idea what they sell. I just know that it's a man's shop. Sell things for men. There's nothing for you ladies here. <laughs> Go away. <laughs> Just Yorkie like, bars and that. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes you watch things. Yorkie bars set in and the donkey past. jackets. <laughs> Sometimes you watch things set in the past and you're like, oh, they're, they're traveling on the chauvinism a bit here, aren't they? And then you watch something actually made in the past and you think, oh, fuck it, never mind. No, that's they're clearly exactly, not. Yeah. They're actually doing. They're actually taming it down, really, aren't they? Yeah. Um, Gina Warwick, who we've already mentioned, Carol Dilworth, who has a music connection in the fact that she married uh, Chip Hawkins, uh, Chip Hawks, I should say, of um, the Tremolos, which means she ah. is the mother of Chesney Hawks, the oh, one and only course. himself. Yeah, yeah. Ah, I I can't believe I didn't get that because I was just listening to an Adam Buxton podcast where Chesney Hawks' name came up. So, ah. yeah, he's been on my mind for the first time since 1991. I actually saw him live. Did you? Completely by accident. <laughs> you tripped and you fell into a Chesney Hawks concert. Literally almost near as damn it, yeah. We was, um, this is, going back a bit, probably late noughties um, okay. 2008 perhaps something like that and me and my mate John were in Liverpool and we used to drink a lot back then <laughs> and one of the things we did it was like a pub crawl we went through we went from one end of Liverpool to the other end of Liverpool and it's a big old walk to do and we got mm. to Concert Square and there was a lot of um, really quite Scur- there, as is often the case in concerts where certainly back then it's quite some scurry individuals um, and it was a summer's evening as well and I just thought oh this looks a bit menacing let's jump in this bar so we jumped in this yeah. bar and there was somebody playing a, playing a guitar and we looked at that shit it's Chesney Hawks <laughs> literally just playing a guitar in a bar with like two other guys it was so weird For a while, it looked like Chesney Hawks would have his retirement fund sorted because Duncan Jones kept using the one and only in his movies. But uh, Duncan Jones has been a bit quiet recently, so it's probably been a lean few years. Castle Hawks. Castle Hawks. (laughs) He does a lot of reality shows now, I believe, doesn't he? I can imagine that. I think he's on this new series, and never mind the Buzzcocks as well, because I'm sure I heard Greg Davies say he touched his mole. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can confirm that because the uh adam Buxton podcast i was listening to was with daisy may cooper ah right brilliant is, yeah yeah brilliant uh who else is in this um robin stewart who would go on to be in i think bless this house the sid james okay. diana coupland um 1976 com and then the two stars of this film for me um, mm. It's Richard O'Sullivan and Veronica Doran, 
as uh, Peter and Madge because they're just this weird sort of Scooby Doo and Shaggy together, aren't they? They are, yeah, yeah. They're, <laughs> they're the so comic odd. relief of the group, aren't they? In, in a yeah. weird way, he's a guy who, I mean, Richard O'Sullivan by this point had, had sort of cut his teeth on sort of, um, I suppose, the British equivalent of the Beach movies, which was the Cliff Richard films. He was always like oh, yeah. one of Cliff Richard's gang, really. Not in, yeah. um, not in um, Summer Holiday, unfortunately, but in the other ones, like the young ones and stuff like that, he's, he routinely yeah. pops up in Cliff Richard movies alongside like Melvin Hayes and people like that. Um, he is, he's got a one-trap mind for drink in this film, <laughs> yeah. um, whereas Veronica Doran has got a one-trap mind for Richard O'Sullivan in this film. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a very um, misogynistic, fat-phobic um, sort of depiction of her character because she's slightly plump and don't they go to yeah. town with that you know I oh yeah the yeah. first scene is her while, while they're all having a sing song in the pub and dancing she's sort of like sat on the floor eating sandwiches I think yes <laughs> the, the famous pub food the pub snack that we all enjoy yeah sandwich yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's like, shut up and eat your sandwiches, Madge, or something like that. And where she does yeah. dance, one of the dolly birds rather snidely says something like, ooh, look at her when she's dancing or something. And you just think, well, at least they're acknowledging that people are bitches towards her, I guess. But it's never developed any further than that because by no. the time you get to the house, um, let's have a five-minute comedy scene where she can't get her ass through the hole in the wall. Yes. <laughs> Using comedy in its broadest in its possible broadest. definition. But you know what I love about this? Um, Veronica Doran apparently said that she was really pleased to be cast in this film because she was getting fed up of playing comedy roles. I guess playing the <laughs> comedy role in a horror movie is like... yeah. And also Michael Armstrong knew her very well and cast her in yeah. this role. I'd be a bit worried about what your friendship is if you go, I'd like yeah. to play the fat woman in my film. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like when Gillian uh, Armstrong split up with Peter Morgan and you think, oh, that makes sense because no relationship can possibly survive the words I see you as Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. It's, it, it, I, I would like to think that something very similar happened to Michael Armstrong and Veronica Dorman's friendship after this. <laughs> but, I mean, they are together, they're quite sweet, I think. Even though the mm. film, when it gets to sort of more, when it attempts to be more serious, because this is, it's a prototype slasher movie, long before sort of yeah. the drive ins of the 70s in America was suddenly sort of like really. Yeah. Stolen the virtue of the slasher genre. This is kind of already there, isn't it? Which makes it a film of of distinction to sort of consider, but mm. it just doesn't really use the the elements of that genre effectively enough. No, I think the moments where you can see it are those moments I mentioned earlier where you do have these quite stylish, suspenseful kills. Yes, yeah, he's very good at kills. It's like again, it's sort of it's that it's it's that sort of stepping stone between the the Italian giallo and then the American slasher and you just got yeah. this one little example of, of English weird 
twee English horror. Um, yeah, somehow yeah. in between them both, and I don't, I don't know how that came about, but it did. Um, but yeah, when they when they try to be serious, I mean, they, they these characters do go through it a little bit. I mean, there's a bit mm. where she's absolutely hysterical after the the first kill of the Gary character, mm. and I think it's one of the other. I can't remember which one. They all look the same after a bit in this film, don't they? <laughs> they, they do. all look young and pretty and Scooby Dooey fied. That we'll yeah. just say one of the Fey ones mm-hmm. <laughs> of the other Fey ones um, <laughs> grabs hold of Madge and slaps her in the face for being hysterical. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, that ancient, that age old tradition of misogyny. It's like, oh, what must be hysterical? Let's smack her in the face. That will stop her from crying. Yeah, that'll calm her down. Yeah, yeah. I'd feel a lot calmer if someone belted me, obviously. And then what I love is that Richard O'Sullivan comes rushing in, seemingly to his girlfriend's rescue, grabs the bloke who slapped her off her, throws her across the floor, then grabs his girlfriend, shakes her, screams in her face, and slaps her. <laughs> what was this it's like you're not doing a good enough job of slapping my girlfriend I must sort of intervene you know I, I, I like to think that he was just kind of keyed up you know he slapped one person it wasn't quite enough and he was just he was just rolling with it he just got carried away this is also this is a film that also has one of the best sort of quotes in any film you could think of for this time for this uh, this film is um Let's have an orgy. Well, it's not even that, isn't it? It's uh, what do you fancy? An orgy of a seance. Or a seance. And it turns out that, I mean, Jill Howard says she fancies neither, which is yeah. when I realised I was going to get along with her yeah. character. Because, she was on uh, drugs. Yeah. <laughs> she can't be asked doing either of those things. <laughs> <laughs> She's off her fucking tits, mate. <laughs> going to zone out in the corner. But the great thing is, after they've said this, the seance, which is what they go with, just involves them like standing in a circle, holding hands. And you think, yeah, I imagine going to an orgy with Frankie Avalon would also look quite a lot like this. Yeah, there's, 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 a, there's, there's not much to differentiate between the two, really, is there? <laughs> but I love that. Let's have an orgy. No, let's have a seance. It's just bizarre. One of the um, one of the one of the weird sort of insistences from AIP as well was that the characters needed to be harder. Um, now, given that <laughs> what what um, this Levy Stroke Marcus person incorporated into his film is a significant part at the beginning around that pub where they couldn't <laughs> possibly be any lighter and softer. Yeah. I don't know how they thought that passed because I think the, I think the characters are harder in Armstrong's vision. Like you say, you're getting people slapping them across the face and, and screaming and shouting and well, let's, genuinely let's... shit scared, you know. Let's just take a moment to take stock of the instructions from AIP. <laughs> yeah, the characters need to be harder. Yeah. There needs to be a musical number. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. We've got to get rid of the homosexual subplot, make it more relevant and up to the minute, and cast Frankie Avalon. <laughs> oh, and also get that guy David Bowie as far away from this movie as possible. As possible, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it's pulling in a lot of put, different I'll directions. I'll put two, kill, two more killings in there that didn't exist yeah. in the original movie as well. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> strange. It's so strange. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that that possibly might be where this sort of really um, half-hearted mention of drugs keeps coming into the film. There's a there's a mm. backstory here that they've all been done for a drugs bust or a, a drug arrest somewhere along, which is the most unbelievable. Totally. Um, the, I mean, these these lot couldn't couldn't get a pack of Captain Full Captain Full Strength <laughs> together. <laughs> the, I mean, the, <laughs> maybe that think, is the drugs bust. Maybe they they'd like. They were just passing a can of Strongbow around each other. Then after a while, they just thought, oh, this is too much. Let's turn ourselves in. <laughs> this is like Rishi Sunak's idea of, 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 of smoking <laughs> is, is, is such a, a t- terrifying thing, isn't it? You know, that, um, <laughs> these, these nasty delinquents, they probably smoke cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that we've mentioned never mind the buzzcocks? Do you think that Rishi Sunak watches the Donny Tourette episode and does not see the irony <laughs> in what Simon Amstel is saying? Oh all my time? god, he's smoking. <laughs> he is smoking. I'm glad someone called that out. Donny Tourette, you could you know, you could possibly buy a pack of cigarettes under uh Rashi Balsack's new regime now at this age, perhaps. <laughs> I love the idea that in twenty years from now, a thirty-nine-year-old isn't going to be able to get back to facts. It's just, just, <laughs> just sort of throws me completely. That doesn't it? <laughs> but yeah, these these lot these lot would find vaping sort of taboo, <laughs> wouldn't they? I mean, yes. they really are. They really are Scooby Doo's. Um, the the protagonists of Scooby Doo in this film, aren't they? Which would be about contemporary with this, and I yeah. guess they do have similar missions, don't they? They are both <laughs> projects that are like, how do we take the sort of two of the big things that the kids are into right now, which is hippiedom and horror, and how do we just make them completely innocuous? Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's a live-action Scooby-Doo film. I'm all for yeah. this, but like you say, it, it has this weird schizophrenia in it because, like you said, the kills are very stylish, they're very bloody. Yeah. Um, it's just, uh, Frankie Avalon, I, I cannot stress this enough. Frankie Avalon <laughs> gets stabbed in the cock and balls. <laughs> cannot stress that enough. I mean, it would be a weird moment anyway, but it's weirder because that is like a protracted bit where he seems to be about to talk Richard down from being a psychopathic murderer. And you think, oh, right, I see where they're going with this. It's like the ending of Ian McEwan's Saturday, only less stupid. (laughs) Then suddenly out of nowhere, cockstab! Cockstab! I mean, it's 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 almost like, could you imagine a Scooby Doo? It's like, it's school caretaker. Yes, and I would have got away if it was for you. Oh my God, Scooby just stabbed Freddy in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> it's that I've got level. Sure where you don't have any meddling kids. <laughs> <laughs> And 
then of course you get this Richard character running off, crying as like sirens are going and what have you. And um, yeah, just just strange. it's hard to make an intimidating slasher movie villain who also has a crying fit when the police show up. Is yeah, <laughs> just a bit. Yeah, yeah. But again, it, it, I mean, I I've watched this film a few times. I still can't make out what he's talking about with the dead brother thing. No. I, because, because I mean, it, it's, there isn't the setup there. There aren't the pieces. No, no. Yeah, I'd like you say now you realise that it was a homosexual thing. Mm. Um, you could kind of perhaps see the pieces going together a little bit better. Still, shit. I would like to, yeah, I'd like still to smacks it. of a straight guy going. This is this is all these gay people, isn't it? <laughs> this is what these gay people do. They stab each other in the cock and balls. <laughs> well, there, there's, uh, yeah, there's there's some precedent around the time for that because this is around the time that Jim Garrison was uh, investigating the murder of John F. Kennedy, an incident that was later portrayed with, I, I think it's fair to say, a deeply sanitized version of Garrison in Oliver Stone's JFK. Yeah. And Garrison's theory as to why his suspect Clay Shaw ordered the murder of J.F. Kennedy is he said it's a homosexual thrill killing. And I would just like Garrison to break it down to me yeah. Yeah. what he thinks gay people do. Mind <laughs> you, I'd like, I'd like Tommy Lee Jones to sort of break that down to me after watching that <laughs> film as well, to be honest. <laughs> Tommy Lee Jones is Mr. Humphreys in Are You Being Served the Movie? <laughs> but I mean, it's like, I, I don't want to drown this podcast in Barbie references, but when you see the sort of orgy scene in JFK, don't you just expect them to all be gathered around going, well, we've uh, we've all dressed up. I, I think we could stay the night and do what? I don't know. <laughs> oh dear me it's oh god yeah i mean they both come at it from an angle of i'm writing or directing something here that i have no real appreciation of (laughs) yeah i think a version I, i want to be like very careful before i say a version of this where the murderer was gay would be very good actually yeah no in all likelihood it would make you cringe in a different way. Oh, gotcha, yeah, it yeah. But it would but have made would, more sense for the would, time. Yeah, there would be some sort of coherence to it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it yeah. would, even if it, even if you could just now watch it and go, well, in a, in the context of folk devils of the time, mm, yeah, you could see where this is coming from. And you know, Britain, yeah. Britain as as a film industry has a good tradition of. of completely fucking up and offending people when it comes to <laughs> making genre movies like this. I mean, there's the wonderful... I mean, I do love this film. I think it's brilliant. Twisted Nerve with um, oh, yeah, Hayley yeah. Mills and Hal Bennett, but my God, does it not understand Down Syndrome? Yeah. Um, it's 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 offensive. It really is. <laughs> I mean, the, the whole idea of queer villains in horror is, is one that's you know, we've mentioned Psycho. That's obviously like a, that's where, a yeah, part. that's definitely where yeah. he's got it from, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it it's but it's existed ever since James Whale, at the very least. And you sort of 
go back and forward. I mean, when I was growing up, people were always protesting movies like Basic Instinct because they had queer villains. And nowadays, I think for all the attempts to drag us backwards, it's hit the point where you're secure enough that you can say, oh, you know, I, I fucking love James Whale movies. I love Patricia Highsmith novels. I, I, I like myself some antisocial nasty queers. And I think I could probably appreciate Armstrong's version on that level, if nothing yeah. else. I say, at least it would have been more coherent. Yeah, yeah. You know, the dots, the dots could be joined up. It might not have actually made sense... Properly. It might not have joined them itself, but, but it would be possible. Yeah, from a satisfying film point of view, you could see you could see where he's gone from A to B. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As opposed to this A to let's get another guy in who will shoot all sorts of shite around it and then change <laughs> your ending completely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, some mean, of the notes I've made as well is um, some mm. of the interesting sort of. Um, Location filming for this because it, considering it's the epitome of swing in London, yeah, of <laughs> mentioning that, um, <laughs> it was filmed all over the country actually. I mean, obviously, uh, Carnaby Street's a great Marlborough Street opposite Liberties, um, is your big London scene here, but the case is altered. The pub is in Middlesex. Um, the exterior of the house was Bank Hall in Bretherton, Lancashire. Oh, and right. the interior of the house was the Birkdale Palace Hotel, Southport. Right. So quite near to me, both of those places. Yeah, interesting. It is quite an interesting thing. I know that this happens in films all the time, but it's quite interesting to think about someone. Where did you say in Lancashire that exterior uh, was again? Bretherton. You open the door in Bretherton and you walk into Southport. Yeah, it's, it's got a bit of a sort of Chronicles of Narnia. That's Ken Loach's yeah. Chronicles of Narnia, that, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it but, I mean, again, I, I mean, it just smacks of, like, two people doing... It's a cut-and-shut movie. I mean, obviously, he's yeah. filmed... They've, they've set something in London, they're mentioned in London, but they're filming it in Lancashire and Southport. Well, yeah. I suppose, I suppose Southport is Lancashire. There's a... I mean, I won't bore you, but... Southport argue that the Southport argue that the Lancashire, but apparently the Merseyside. I think I'm not sure. It's a okay, okay. I do the same actually with St Helens, but the, I can go on for hours talking about shit like that. Um, yeah, so they filmed a lot of it in the northwest under Armstrong, but then when this mm. other guy comes in, he suddenly starts filming on the streets of of London itself, Carnby Street, Marlborough Street, um, and then Middlesex as well. So. He's giving it that that sort of London spin. I love the the scenes in Carnaby Street actually because it just oh I think it definitely gives it like the right kind of time capsule appeal. It grounds yeah. it, doesn't it? It really gives it yeah. a, it gives it a sense of place. Whereas, but then again, I suppose that the the downside of that is it really does date it. I suppose yeah. because if if you were well, it's to watch, be dated anyway. It's going to be dated anyway. Slasher yeah. movie starring Frankie Avalon. It's going to be this. dated anyway. But if 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 you had Armstrong's original intention, which was just in the house, and he's yeah. filming it, you know, an exterior and interior in Lancashire, you you're going to be more. There isn't going to be that sense of place. It's going to be so. There is a sort of and a sort of 
you know, an evergreen sort of atmosphere to it. Yeah, I think Armstrong's version sounds like the sort of film that could be made anywhere at any time. And I know some people really prize that. And, you know, it's there's a reason why timeless is a compliment. But to me, I, I do like films which have a sort of flavour of a time and a place. Yeah, yeah. And like you say, you've, you've got a bunch of Dolly Birds and Frankie mm. Avalon. You may, as well yes. go, you may as well go all out and just say, well, this is this is where we're at. This is the time. This is the place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, it'd be interesting to see whether anybody could ever do anything with like a director's cut. I doubt anybody's going to be crying out for that, but it would be interesting <laughs> to see whether that sort of material exists to to do it but apparently originally they did say that they would they would try and release both films and see you know in a kind of exorcist um <laughs> yeah dominion yeah, yeah the rennie harlem and the other one sort of paul yeah. schrader paul schrader yeah. yeah whether 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 that was ever seriously muted or not i do not know um, yeah. I mean, I would imagine it would be released around the world in various cuts anyway, yeah. because you are getting to this era in British horror where what the audience wants and what the international markets want is several shades harsher than what the British Board of Film censors, as they were then, uh, would be willing to pass. And so you you have this situation that I was just describing on the podcast last episode with Robin, uh, where directors like Norman J. Warren and mm. Pete Walker are, are just sort of preparing cuts of a film that they know will never be seen in their home country, yeah. like sort of Soviet dissidents preparing their letters out of the country, it's, except it's in so their true, case yeah. it's like sex comedies. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see the sort of inception of that here. Yeah, I yeah. think it's that interesting point where you get to about 69, 70 and mm. Amicus have started to show the way that, you know, you can do films with a horror bent in modern day settings. Yeah. Um, which is Hammer was always like gothic fairy tales, weren't they? They were always the past. Yeah. Um, and then sort of Hammer sort of caught on to that idea in the early 70s. And they did some really interesting stuff like Straight Until Morning, which is very... Mm. Um, dark and psychological and quite sick, really. Yeah. Um, which, you know, that's the type of film you'd imagine somebody getting stabbed in the cock and balls in. You know? Yes, definitely. And nobody would bat an eyelid. Um, yeah. But then they would do Dracula AD 1972 and the satanic rites of Dracula as well, which just didn't get... I mean, that <laughs> that is this film, isn't it? That is... Yeah. That is the kids from this film in uh, in AD seventy two. You know these. Weird I mean, it's of... it's it's an observation that everyone has made before me, but it is very funny that Dracula AD seventy two now feels more like a period piece than any of the actual period the actual set. Period set it, yeah. yeah, that is so true. That is so true. Um, I, the other one I want I want to mention as well. Um, another pop screen uh, reference on this is that the music is by the Pretty Thing. Oh yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. 
so that was that was uh, an interesting one to to note. I didn't really suss that until I was looking into it, and I thought, oh right, okay, so there's that. So I wrote that down as well. Um, because they don't trumpet that, do they? I mean, normally yeah. if you've got a, a swinging London film with an actual pop band on the soundtrack, you make sure that people don't miss that. But yeah, yeah, doesn't it's happen. Strange. I mean, it yeah. just struck me again then when we were talking about AD seventy two because they've got that terrible band, haven't they? Is it called Stone <laughs> or something like that? Something or under like that, stone yeah. ground or something. I can't remember. They wanted the small faces and they pulled out. <laughs> so they, they ended up with these no marks. You know? <laughs> 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 with apologies to anybody uh, with, with a relationship with that band who may be listening. <laughs> I imagine that they're one of those bands where every single member went on to become someone's English teacher. Or a jingles writer. Oh, yeah, or the jingles writer. Or they yeah. might be like, you remember the bass in um, Pigeon Street? I played that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. Definitely um, that. Armstrong, uh, for all that his directorial career didn't produce many films, did have an interesting career. I mean, we talked about British horror directors uh, being aware that the horror audience wants something a bit nastier. He went on to make the West German co-production Mark of the Devil, which mm. is very infamous, very nasty film indeed. Yeah, Another uh, one I've not watched for obvious reasons. <laughs> I know of it, but I've not watched it, no. <laughs> I've, you know, I'm with you on some of the gore stuff, but I just want to say I really love body horror. Body horror is very yeah, I see. I, to me. Yeah. I know because you're a Cronenberg fan, aren't you? But it's exactly like, never yeah. did it for me at all. Yeah. Um, what's it called? Videodrome. Love Videodrome. Yeah. If you do that on this, if you've not done it already, don't go looking for me to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> we did do Videodrome. I thought you would. Have. On. I yeah, thought you would. Have. Yeah. 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 I I gave that one a miss, obviously. <laughs> I just think it's a great documentary about what James Woods is actually like in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Very true, very true. Um, My sort of closing statement on this film is that Mm. I remember first watching it in the sort of late 90s or early noughties, I think. And it's one of those films that used to pop up on BBC Two after like Stella Street or something like that. (laughs) And you've been out for the night and you've just got in at pub's closing time and Stella Street's on. You're like, oh, brilliant. You're having your takeaway with a, a can of beer watching Stella Street. And then you just sort of like drifting sort of in and out of like interest of anything and these films <laughs> pop up. These horror movies used to pop up on BBC Two and you sort of just gently fall asleep to them. It's yeah. it's a good film to sort of just sit and have a bit of a, a chuckle with over a can of beer, really. Um, if yeah. you're looking for a horror film, it's probably not this, even though the title <laughs> is The Haunted House of Horror. <laughs> if yes. you're looking for a Scooby-Doo film that weirdly has um, some seriously brutal <laughs> cock and ball stabbings in, then um, <laughs> this is the one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think we've all wondered about what 
Scooby-Doo would be like with a few more brutal cock and ball stabbings in. So <laughs> it is pro- it's a recommendation. Of course we have. Yeah, of course we have. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, can we just have a round of where people can find you on the internet? Uh they can find me looking through the window behind them because it's Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> they can find me uh, on Letterboxd, uh, The Geek Show, at um, We Are Cults, at ooh, uh, various Arrow film releases, and also in Scarred for Life Volume 2, which is available from lulu.com. Um, that is for all your fun, interesting horror and macabre things terrified you as a child yes. <laughs> needs. Uh, I feature in that. I talk about how casualty, various things in casualty terrified me as a child. So. And we're both on Letterboxd. We're both course. on Letterboxd, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and yes, so uh, we'll be back in a fortnight's time uh, with, I think it'll be Aiden and me talking about Round Midnight. Uh, ah. Are you filming that time. Round Midnight? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe we didn't go with that as a gimmick. Yeah, I Everyone knows podcasts are very dependent on Gimmits. scheduling. Yeah, <laughs> I'd have done it like After Dark. Remember on Channel 4, like Tony Wilson? <laughs> I did it so, like that. Who, who, who's wankered then if it's an episode of After Dark? Who's going to get absolutely You're going to have to pick hammered. one of you to be absolutely hammered, yeah. And sort yeah. Of bring the wild one and try and <laughs> get off with a lesbian. You know, you're going to have to try. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, but yeah, we'll be back in a fortnight with that. Uh, you can donate to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the geek show, where among so many other goodies, uh, my X Files reviews, not least of which, um, you will also get a monthly bonus episode of this show. And me and Mark are on that next month, talking mm-hmm. about vibes with Cindy Lauper. Yeah, so make sure you pass the vibe test. Indeed. But until fortnight's time that's been your lot from pop screen i've been graham and i've been mark goodbye what your exit strategy there was gonna be <laughs> just let it rain down just go for rick mail it's the best one you to do really isn't it i'm bringing the chill factor into this podcast <laughs> I've got a light under me You've face. You've got a light under your face. I just thought, well, yeah, but you live in the northeast. I just thought that was normal. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a candle. There's been another power cut. <laughs> I just thought, you know, I just thought that's what it was. I'm glad you've now cleared that up. <laughs>